Welcome to Rooster Radio, where we talk to interesting people doing amazing things. I'm Andrew Montesi. Today I talk to Dr. Philip Alvelda, one of America's leading tech engineers and minds. A pioneer in artificial intelligence, Dr. Alvelda has been developing anthropomorphic AI and machine learning tools, digital twins and synthetic personalities. He is the founding CEO of Cortical AI and is formerly of NASA and the Defense Advanced Research Agency, which is a department of the US Defense Force. He also founded Moby TV, the first company to bring live TV to mobile devices. Dr. Alvelda is at the forefront of a world where technology is advancing mankind, pioneering a brain-machine interface industry that helps the blind see, the deaf hear, and the paralyzed regain movement. And yet, fear of AI and a perceived threat of robots remains, concerns that Dr. Alvelda addresses in our interview. We cover that and a range of other issues, including the future of anthropomorphic AI, opportunities, ethical considerations, and much more. Dr. Alvelda will be in Adelaide sharing his insights at Hybrid World, a tech conference held on July 23 and 24. Enjoy the interview. Philip, welcome to Rooster Radio. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Now, off the top, when you're at a party and um, someone asks you what you do, what do you say? How do you describe what you do? It's a it's a fun it's a fun job to build technology companies where you can change the world, and uh, and and I've been at it for a, a few decades now and had some hits, some misses, uh, but this this time around we're working in a really exciting area uh, to build a next generation of artificial intelligence that works more like real people think. We're going to get into this, but let's rewind right back to your childhood. How would you describe yourself back then and? Were you always destined for this kind of life? Yeah, I think so. You know, I was the kid whose dad woke him up uh, in the middle of the night to say, hey, you're going to remember this night for the rest of your life. And, you know, there's Neil Armstrong stepping off lunar lander to put, set foot on the moon. Uh, and, you know, this was only a couple years after, as a three-year-old, he'd taken me to see 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, a few later, you know, years after that, I found his box of science fiction books in the attic and you know, more or less disappeared from school for another three months. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's been in the cards for some time. So this was, so your dad was fairly inspirational then? Oh, very much so. You know, he, he was a, a lifetime engineer at, uh, uh, worked on some of the first computers that had been made by IBM back in the day uh, and would always bring home odd bits of technology and computer models and so on. And uh, my mom was also a lifetime academic uh she was in uh, medical microbiology and anatomy and physiology. So I, I grew up in an environment that even when school science was really boring, my parents would tell me, don't worry, that's just the way the education system is ruining science. The real science is actually really cool. Uh, and that, and that, and that stuck with me. Well, that's awesome. How did they, how did they teach you how to think? It sounds like a bit of an odd question, but. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think the, the, the main thing that they did was, was they were always encouraging me to be curious and actually think about what was happening around you uh, and not just listen to what other people would tell you is happening and, and really engage your brain and, and ponder how it works. Mm. Uh, and that, that has been, you know, uh, you know, I call it my religion if you want, uh, uh, but, but one of um, thinking about how things fit, not just what you see. Mm. I guess well on that to um, to come into some of the amazing things that you're working on now um, on Rooster Radio, 
James, who I normally host with, um, we often talk about how we ask dumb questions of very smart people, and this is absolutely the case. I was doing a little bit of research uh, looking into things like neural engineering and all these sort of topics that you're into. How would you describe this world in a in a real practical sense what are the what are the real everyday things that that this field that you're in impact well i would i would say that uh you know the early impact is is already quite profound where you know people that have profound deficits you know the early efforts for for the darpa projects uh, were to help people that had lost limbs so you know they in an ied explosion and they have no arm um you know the effort was could we not just make a mechanical arm that you know kind of move around with your hands, but would control with your mind as if it were your own. And we were successful. And then we did the reverse parts where we would put sensors in the fingertips and the joints of the robot. So, you know, you would feel uh, when you reached out and you touched something. And, and you know, when, when we would bring the veterans on stage and to talk about, you know, their prosthetic arm, they're weeping on stage because, you know, they're, they're in front of an audience of like a thousand people that are all weeping together with them because they're saying, you know, we, I'm, I'm right handed again. This isn't a prosthetic. It's my arm now. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. It's, it's, it, I'm right handed again. You know, after losing my right hand 20 years ago, you know, now I, I'm whole and I can feed myself and, you know, I can, I can drink from a water bottle without squirting the water out and, and things that you and I take for granted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you could see the emotional impact. Um, and so that was, that was just the beginning. And so now, you know, we're, we're the, the program that I started was to take those, you know, original understandings of the simplest part of the brain mm. and apply it to things like vision and hearing and speech. Uh, that's that's a profound direction. Absolutely. So this is what is this what you we hear of the brain machine interface? That's right. That's how do, right. How do you describe that? Well, you know, it's it's the idea of. Uh, being able to open up the skull and put a tiny little device uh, right up against the brain, close the skull up so it's not clear that there's anything there at all. Everything is wireless. Um, and and yet you can write images directly into your visual field. So this could cure blindness for someone that doesn't have any eyes or deafness for someone that has no ears. Um, or, you know, imagine a few generations in the future where it's not just the implantable device of today, uh, but has gone through a few engineering evolutions and is now smaller and more powerful and more integrated, less invasive, uh, you and I could have one where if I have an implant and you have an implant, you could look out of my eyes. Uh, those sorts of things are possible, or I could imagine speaking to you without saying anything and you could hear me in your head. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we think are coming, and that's just the beginning. That's unbelievable. I was also reading there's been some amazing work with like quadriplegics. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that was, uh, that was that first prosthetic work where, you know, the goal was originally to see if it would work in monkeys. And we, we funded some work at Duke where they, they would connect a monkey and, and he would use a robotic arm to feed himself marshmallows, you know. And, uh, and then of course the, the real watershed moment was when we, we had a volunteer, Jan Sherman, who had, uh, been in an accident and was paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, and we made the, the same sort of implant surgery to interface directly with the motor cortex. 
Uh, and yeah, she could control the robot arm. And there's that famous, you know, 60 minutes interview where she gave, you know, the, the anchor a fist bump. <laughs> Everyone's like, Oh my God, that's, 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 that was the watershed moment, you know, where the door opened to a world of possibilities where we could interact with things with our mind. Um, and then, you know, it was just a short hop and a skip to uh, uh, new applications where instead of wiring her up to a, uh, a robot arm, we wired her up to an F-35 flight simulator. And, you know, the cool thing about that was, you know, she began by imagining, you know, controlling the flight simulator with her arm as if it were controlling a joystick. But after doing it for uh, like a week or so, that abstraction went away and she could just imagine herself being the plane, you know, banking and rolling and so on, and could maintain level flight in sophisticated, you know, military flight simulator. <laughs> so, uh, you know, imagine... That's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the idea of even what are the limits of your body start to go away. Uh, so, you know, affecting communications, media, what you might transmit in and out, getting rid of language, spoken or written text, all of these things are in the future. So someone... Uh, one of the leading voices in this area, like you're talking about things that many of us can't even imagine. How do you actually remove those typical psychological barriers, those limitations that we naturally have? Yeah, you know, it's it's um, you know the way we've come to think of it in the in the neuroscience world is uh, whatever you do most of, you know, becomes an easy habit. And so it actually takes more anxiety and, and, you know, you've got to eliminate or actually more energy, less anxiety. So you've got to, you've got to eliminate the distractions and the, and the energy drains so that you can play with new ideas and be creative. Uh, but I've always been reading the science fiction and I've always been thinking about, you know, what, what could be the future that you could create. And, and I think, you know, one of the roots of it is like a little bit of impatience, a little bit of dissatisfaction. Like, you know, this is the way things are today, but, you know, how can we make it better? Uh, and it's a real drive to, you know, not just, you know, build a new technology for technology's sake, but, but to really improve the human condition in a meaningful way. Mm. Uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, for all the bad press the Silicon Valley set is getting these days, uh, I think that's a, one of the core ethics that is sometimes unsung, but very important. Mm, absolutely. What about in defense? I know uh, this is a, a big field for you. How is this technology being applied in defense and and what are the opportunities yeah that's a that's a good question uh at darpa um we took a even though darpa is part of the department of defense at uh in the united states um we took a very purposeful and principled stance uh that we weren't going to do any you know what we call a black or secret projects uh and in fact you know we felt that the the, the neuroengineering industry was so vital for human advancement uh, that we took the principle of, of doing all of the work uh, completely open uh, with, no, with no secrecy whatsoever, uh, with the intent of benefiting mankind and, and, and making sure that the United States was in a leadership position, A, to benefit the United States and kind of economic advantage, but, but also uh, to make sure that we were ahead and were in a position that if, if some other nation tried to misuse it or abuse it, that we would, as leaders in the technology, be in a good position to try and defend against that that misuse. Mm. Uh, but honestly, you know, up until the point when I, where I left the agency, there was no you know military application, as much as some of the you know uh, I would call the excitable websites would like to talk about things like super soldiers. Uh, there really wasn't any any cast of that at all within the agency. Mm. Mm. Um, 
So I, I was I was very proud of that, uh, you know, through the through the whole evolution. What sort of projects then were? I mean, we're not talking about um, armies of robot soldiers. So what what were some of the projects that were um, were in focus? Well, you know, most most uh, up up until the point where I, I joined the agency, uh, most of the work was just in understanding the the basic science and physics of you know how can you get information in and out of the brain. Uh, and how can you treat, you know, specific deficits? So, uh, we worked on the prosthetics, you know, for the people that had lost limbs. We worked on, um, restoring memory to, you know, there were certain, you know, very common injuries of the brain where, um, you know, people lose the ability to convert short-term memory into long-term memory. Uh, and so we had a program called Restoring Active Memory where we would, you know, find that point in the brain where there's a cut or a lesion and, and we would make a bridge across that and, and, and restore memory function. Um, and the, the profound thing about that was that even in healthy people, uh, we were able to boost episodic memory recall by about 40%, which is no small feat. I mean, if I had a 40% boost memory, uh, you know, I, I would be <laughs> much more useful executive. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think, um, uh, you know, that was, that was the sort of program that we had. There was, um, there was another really interesting program run by my colleague, uh, Doug Weber, who's now at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, as, you know, as he, as he kind of, uh, retired out of DARPA as well, um, where they, they, they called it, um, the electrics program. It was an electronic medicine program. The idea is that, uh, most of your organs are, of course, wired into and controlled by your nervous system. Uh, and yet, you know, we treat those organs when they start to misbehave in some capacity uh, by, by pharmaceuticals, which are, you know, interventions that, that, that you know, inundate your whole body. Um, and the idea was that, um, no, instead, let's let's learn the language of how this, the, the nervous system controls the organs. And, you know, we can have uh, like an electronic implant that would, you know, help fix your liver or help fix your stomach or, you know, treat, you know, various uh, even mental conditions like anxiety and things can be influenced by, uh, you know, the, the gut nervous system, for example. Uh, so uh, and that that, of course, got a number of companies like Google and GlaxoSmithKline uh, excited and they've started a subsidiary with something like a $700 million in investment to, to drive that yeah. uh, technology direction. Yeah. So those were the, those were the types of programs that, that, uh, have been going on more recently, you know, after my program to do the direct interface to the visual cortex so that you could see and the auditory cortex so you could hear. Now they're going to the next stage. Can we develop the technology that will do the same sorts of things, but outside the skull instead of inside? Uh, so, you know, the progression is, you know, what are the technologies that we can make it be more powerful, more accessible uh, as, as an industrial platform? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating stuff. I guess, I mean, you, you touched on some of the criticisms that Silicon Valley has got. Um, but to, I guess, talk more broadly, um, particularly around some of the, the fears and the hype and the excitable websites, how, how close is... Uh, I guess the world of machine versus man and how, what, <laughs> what are the key differences? How close is machine to man and yeah. what, what are the missing pieces? Well, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the excitement when, when you have the reports that, uh, you know, oh my God, Google has made a machine that can beat humans at go. Okay. <laughs> yes. Hard game. But, you know, take a little solace. You know, if you just change the size of the board a little bit, <laughs> the Google machine breaks. Uh, so, 
you know, I, I, the way I, I describe the limits of AI as it exists today is that, you know, the, the kind of things that we've simulated are tiny little pieces of the brain that do very, very specific things like play go or right. identify faces or recognize words. Each one of those is like a few millimeters of brain tissue. Mm. Now, fortunately, we have a lot more than that that, that does many more uh, more complicated things. So, you know, the, the people who should worry about their jobs are the ones that are doing very narrow, repetitive things that now the humans can, you know, easily outperform them. Mm. Um, the, uh, the one, the, the type of problems where you need memory or broad social context or you need to link vision with sound, you know, anything that uses more parts of your brain, that's a long way off. Mm. And, and so in a way, you know, that also kind of captures the opportunity for a new company like mine, Cortical.ai, where, you know, we are focusing on taking the new things that we learned from interfacing to the brain and, and discovering how it really works uh, and applying it to build some more of the pieces and begin wiring them together in a way that makes them more powerful and closer to a human brain. Now, as far as, you know, fears of the robot apocalypse and Skynet go, uh, you know, that's just, uh, I think, hype. And, mm. and, and if you ask people how concerned they are and then make a map of how close are they to the AI industry versus, you know, uh, the, the, you know, I need to generate clicks on my website for ad impressions, <laughs> you know, world, uh, I would say that the people that are most worried are the ones that want the ad clicks and the people mm. that are in AI are like, not a problem. They're really limited. Mm. Long time. Um, so, you know, this notion of singularity where all of a sudden there's, you know, this moment where the, the computers escape our control, uh, I think that's that's just a, a nice dystopian uh, science fiction novel. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, the reality is it's going to creep up on us. It's not going to surprise us. You know, we're, we're piecing apart, you know, what each little part of the brain does bit by bit by bit. There's not going to be a surprise where all of a sudden it's sentient and takes control. And even then, even then... You know, it does, you know, just having a good computer, a good AI isn't enough. It's got to have agency in the physical world. And today robots still pretty much suck. Mm. So, so far we can still unplug them when they misbehave. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry too much about it in the near term. Okay, good. I'm relieved. Um, so as someone who understands this world of AI better than anyone, what has it enabled you to learn more about humans? You know, whether that be on a, on an emotional, even a spiritual level. Well, I, I think it's 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 gotten me to kind of think about two really important things. One is just to marvel at the complexities that even a one-year-old can manage that our computers can't. So in that sense, it really keeps you humble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and the other is that um, we haven't really found anything magical or mystical that we couldn't understand. And you know, the more we kind of piece apart, the more we you know, develop more advanced tools to look with more precision. You know, the advances in microscopy have been wondrous in the last few years. But now we're, we're getting to the point where we can see the fundamental computations that, that do make us conscious and aware. And we don't understand all of it yet by any means. But there's no mystery. You know, you zap that little piece, that capability goes away. There's a physical machine that's doing it. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, that, that has some profound philosophical implications that I don't think we've sorted through yet, but are really fun to think about. Hmm. Personally, how do you address like ethical issues, ethics in this space? Like, where do you set boundaries? How how does the industry approach that? Yeah, that's a that's a very very important question. 
We um, at DARPA, I'm, I'm very proud to say that the approach led by Arthi Prabhakar, who was the director of the agency uh, while I was uh, a program manager there, uh, was a very purposeful process. And, and there was a very early commitment from the very beginning of the programs in, in neuroscience uh, to be ethical and open about them and, and not even to do it on our own regards, but to engage with a range of some of the most um, respected thought leaders, you know, around the world uh, to help think through, you know, what are the profound, not just ethical implications, but implications of impact to society. Uh, things like democratization of, of information access and, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, and so I, I think it's tremendously important. And, and it's one of the reasons why I went to DARPA when I realized some of these things were possible, because I thought it was very important that, um, you know, one of the nations that has a very, very strong ethical framework and a regulatory framework for preventing misuse of, of medical technologies uh, would be the right place to have this you know, technology come to the fore. Um, and part of the DARPA mission was also not just to invent the new technologies, but but to be leading in them so that if someone else begins to misuse them, we're in a good position to to defend against that misuse. Hmm. Uh, but tremendously important. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, if there's any message here to relate to the to the listeners, it's that everyone should be talking about these things because these transitions, this transition to a mind-enabled society where we, you know, communicate with our thoughts and we control things with our thoughts, this isn't, uh, you know, this is going to happen in a few generations kind of thing. This is going to happen within our lifetimes. Mm. Uh, and so we need to be having the conversations today about, you know, what's societally appropriate and what's ethically uh, reasonable and, and not just, you know, what can we do technologically, but what should we be doing ethically. Mm. Uh, so it's happening, it's happening now, and we, we should be talking about it. Absolutely. Now, this seems a fair way away from your previous life running um, Moby TV as a media exec and winning an, winning an Emmy. How, yeah. how, did, how did that transition take place? Well, you know, what, uh, what your research, maybe I don't know how you didn't go back far enough in your, uh, in your No, background. I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's quite all right. It's kind of a crazy history. Uh, well, you know, my first job out of uh, undergraduate, uh, university was at NASA, uh, where I started working on uh, spacecraft sensors that flew on the space shuttle and, and uh, a couple of the interplanetary spacecraft, Galileo, Cassini, Magellan. Um, but but after doing some of that work, I, I joined. I was the first member of the neural computation and nonlinear science group at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and we were thinking about how do you make new types of computers that work more like the human brain. And at the time, I, I, you know, after doing that work, I, I went back to graduate school at MIT and I kind of moved aside and left that field a little bit because the, the tools and the technology weren't there. Uh, but I've been thinking about it for 30 years. And, uh, you know, as we were wrapping up the sale of, uh, of one of my companies, uh, you know, the, the Nature article comes out with the ability to program neurons to light up when they fire. And I was like, this is it. This is the moment. You know, we can finally make a brain interface that, that's meaningful. Uh, and so, you know, hither, hither I go to DARPA <laughs> to make, uh, to make it happen. And so, you know, I got to play a role in, uh, you know, not just running a program at DARPA, but catalyzing a new industry that I think will change the, change the, the human condition. It's amazing, um, the work that you've done. But what I'm really interested in is what baffles you at the moment? What are the, what are the problems, whether it's a daily problem or, or something at a higher level? What's just got you stumped? 
Well, the, the one that I've really kind of been obsessing about for six months is um, what are the physical underpinnings of consciousness? And, you know, when you when you start to think of, uh, you know, making a next generation AI, you know, we we start by saying, well, we wanted to make better decisions. OK, well, we wanted to, you know, be able to talk about its decisions in a, in a way that I can relate to. So it's got to have some emotional and social context. How do we do that? Uh, oh, well, I can make parameters, but, you know, how do I make a machine that that, uh, you know, can can understand and represent abstractions like friend or enemy or harm or theft, things that you and I just know because we grew up and were educated. Mm. Um, and so we have a machine that learned to do that. How can I make a synthetic one? But, you know, it's just a short hop, skip and a jump to realize, well, you know, there's kind of an underpinning issue of kind of existential realization. Like I am here. I am an entity. You know, I can imagine my future and 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 how you know i have executive function i can i can imagine you know if i make a decision today what are the consequences of my of my decision in the future well we haven't made a machine that does that is that what consciousness is if i make that and you can you know you can't tell that it's a machine if does it pass the turing test you know those those are the kinds of things that i've been obsessing about and and you know what are the little pieces the little lego blocks that if i just assemble the right pieces i could make something conscious that's self aware uh, what does that mean? So that I've been I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. Wow, I guess, and and the the opposing question to that is, what is the really natural, silly um, obsession that you might have? Whether it's a TV show or something that you go, I really shouldn't be wasting my brain power on this. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I uh, you know, in the field for for fans of this type of thing. Uh, there's a couple of really good shows imagining the future that are live right now in the United States. One is called The Expanse on the Sci-Fi Network. Uh, it's um, uh, written by uh, uh, a couple. There's a there's a science fiction uh, you know series that it's based on that I, rec- I highly recommend. Um, I'd also say that Westworld is uh, scarily Westworld. good. <laughs> so good. Uh, to really get you thinking about it. Uh, other things that I can recommend on the science fiction front, if you haven't read Ramez Nam's uh, Nexus series, you should do that. Uh, actually, DARPA is referenced in the uh, in the appendix of, of the novels. He's, he's quite technically astute and, and wrote some really good stuff. Uh, also, the Robopocalypse series by uh, Abramson. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of good science fiction that you can really kind of lose yourself in and, and, and start to imagine a range of futures. Hopefully less dystopian than some of the ones in the novel, but, uh, uh, really interesting stuff. Well, Philip, it's been an awesome chat. I mean, we've, we've smashed through a lot of stuff on a very surface level. I almost feel bad because we weren't able to get into anything too deep, but, um, really appreciate your time. Really looking forward to you coming back out to Adelaide. What, what are some of the hot topics that you're going to be addressing when you're in town? Well, I mean, I, I think we've touched on a few of them. You know, we're, we're really going to talk about how we're going to take the learnings of the DARPA program to interface with the brain and build this next generation of, uh, of more you know, human-like thinking machines, uh, hopefully getting closer to something that's conscious but ethical and trustworthy. Absolutely. Well, thank- not, not <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time, Philip. We're looking forward to seeing you when you're in town. Indeed. Thanks for listening to our interview with Dr. Philip Alvelder. Don't miss his keynote at Hybrid World in July. Find out more at hybridworldadelaide.org. If you're enjoying Rooster Radio, make sure you subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Check out our website, roosterradio.biz, for our full episode list and to connect with us. 